Hey, Paul, I'm excited to tell you that we are launching a Curbsiders Patreon. Have you heard about this? I, I did because I work with you, but tell me more about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, we want to be able to keep offering this great free content, and we're doing things like upgrading our website. We offer transcripts now for episodes, recording new seasons of our miniseries, Teach and Addiction Medicine. The Digest is growing its staff. And Paul, now we're on video. People can see us uh, as we're talking right here. What a treat for our listeners. That's right. So with Cashlack admitting privileges, they're going to get... All episodes ad-free, that's the whole back catalog, plus future episodes. And twice monthly, there's going to be bonus episodes where me and you recap a show and answer some listener questions. So people should sign up today at patreon.com slash curbsiders, and uh, you get a whole lot of more of Paul, America's PCP. <laughs> Hi, Moni. Did you hear about the patient in Detroit who was having a hard time peeing? No, I did not. Oh, that's surprising. He called 911 and asked for the police. Uh, the 911 operator was pretty confused and asked him, don't you mean the paramedics? And the patient said, no, I, I heard the police have the right guy for the job. This guy named Axel Foley. <laughs> okay. All right, with the puns. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to Curbsiders. It's another inpatient episode, guys. First Monday of the month. Thank you for joining us. I'm Moni Amin, joined by my effervescent co-host, Dr. Meredith Trubit. How are you this evening? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? You know, I'm better now that I've heard that pun. On tonight's show, we discuss the bane of many hospital epidemiologists and quality officers' in, uh, existence, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, with our guest, Dr. Layla Walk-Colburn. In just a moment, our producer and deliverer of that pun, Dr. Noble Malik, who is also recently a National Teaching Award winner. We'll tell you a bit more about our guest and the topic, but first, Meredith, will you remind the good people in the audience what it is we do on this show? Sure, Moni, I'd love to. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, and Noble, do you want to tell us a little bit about our guest tonight? Yeah, we had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Layla Wilcoburn. She's Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine. She's the medical director of the Outpatient Parenteral Antimicrobial Therapy for the division. She's a graduate of the Universidad Francisco Marroquin in Guatemala. She completed her internal medicine residency at Advocate Illinois Masonic Medical Center in Chicago and her Infectious Diseases and HIV Medicine Fellowship at Case Western University in Cleveland. She's also received a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene. Her clinical interests focus on tropical diseases in immunosuppressed persons, including persons living with HIV, orthopedic infections, mycotic diseases, and medical education. You know, she traveled all over the world um, giving lectures. That reminds me that I recently came back from a trip to Italy. You know what I was surprised by? I was surprised to learn that instead of urine, using urine dipsticks to check for infections, they use biscottis. <laughs> And without further ado, let's get to it. All right. We've been talking to Layla a little bit offline, and I think we're ready to get started. So we like to start by just kind of getting to know you a little bit. You mentioned something kind of interesting. I wanted to make sure the listeners knew about you. So when you travel, you travel to run like you do like races. Is that correct? Yeah, I do runcations. 
So the best way to see a city is by running. So you get up around seven, eight o'clock in the morning, you go do 5K, 10K around it, take beautiful pictures, no tourists, and enjoy just a beautiful city. And then you're ready to go for the rest of the day. I, I enjoy it. I started doing it in around 2014 uh, as more of a, a way of taking some time for myself from a busy day in the hospital and consults. And so, and then it's a nice way of uh, starting the day. And if you have that anxious energy before a presentation, it's the best way to get away from it. Does that mean that you did some running before this? <laughs> Uh, no, I did some rowing before this, but uh, recently at ACP meeting, I had to do a presentation. So I did a little five mile run before my presentation. Those are fun facts. You must be in really good shape, though, between the running and the rowing. Not really, but uh, I, I think I'm, I'm OK. I, <laughs> you know, keeps keeps you limber and young. Okay. Um, so I think the next question we'll ask is. Um, I mean, everyone has at least one in medicine, probably multiple, but um, tell us maybe about like a favorite failure you've had and kind of what you learned from it. So, you know, a favorite failure actually it, uh, precedes uh, medical school. Um, it was when I was in undergrad. I didn't have the best grades. And this is where I was trying to figure out if I wanted to go into medicine or actually do uh, more biology research uh, since I was a biology major, as most of us are. So my grades weren't too great. I, you know, I had come from Guatemala and, you know, kind of party a little more than usual. So I got my part of uh wine connoisseur in Santa Clara University in California and a little bit of biology and biochemistry. That's a well-rounded education. Yeah, it is. My, my parents didn't think so, but, but, but it was. <laughs> but um, what, what it gave me was uh, a little time of growing up. I think uh, graduating when you're 21, 22 and not knowing. And then I was able to go back to Guatemala and do medical school. And I was actually more mature. Um, I think if I had done it, I've done medical school in Guatemala. You start when you graduate from high school, I would have probably dropped out. Uh, but that experience helped me center and, and, and mature and actually understand better my patients. So um, even though it's humbling because you, you didn't do your best in college and everybody's like, wow, you should have been amazing. Uh, it wasn't. But I learned from it. I, I think the double degree or the triple degree that you met, referenced is just phenomenal. I don't know a lot of people that can say that. So uh, and I, you know, I, I do really like that advice just because I think that a lot of times uh, learners, I know myself when I was in training and I would see these attendings that were probably winging it the way I do now, <laughs> that I just felt like they were crushing it. And like just for that, for listeners and, and learners to know that, like, you don't have to be like the creme de la creme to be an awesome educator and like be able to work with residents and stuff. And I think that's just really good advice. And I wish I wouldn't realize that when I was training. So with that, do you want to do some picks of the week? I think it's time. Do you have one, Noble? Yeah, um, I'm someone who really likes mystery novels and books about that. And so that's probably the one I always pick. And so one of my new favorite authors is a guy named Anthony Horowitz. Uh, he's written scripts for television shows and um he's done a james a james bond revival but the book i like to talk about is twist of a knife he has a character he inserts himself in as a character in his stories um and uh, i find it fascinating this he's this is book number four twist of a knife it's really good um i'm gonna pick um the last season of marvelous mrs Maisel. um I still haven't watched episode six and the season's still not done because Amazon's doing this cruel thing for binge watchers where they're releasing one episode every week. 
Um, I just feel like we've gone past that in this era, Amazon. But like, hey, it's it's your call. Um, it's fine. But the sh- show is really good. I've always loved it, and I'm a little sad to see it end. But um, I feel like Amy Sherman Palladino really did it. Was true to herself throughout the show, and I just respect her a lot for it. Yeah, we were talking the other day about how she just loves using that budget that Amazon gave her. And it I mean it it's used in the best way. Yeah. You know, when you watch that show. Absolutely. Yeah. What's yours? I think I'm just gonna end with that actually. Yeah. You're gonna just steal mine? No. I so I, mine is like Moni absurdity. So I feel like it would go too long. You have to tell everyone. Okay, fine. Um so fans as you're aware hopefully by now because otherwise i'd just be sad um i love kelly clarkson and i very recently on her birthday april 24th if anyone's wondering uh was in attendance for basically a birthday concert and it was in la and she did her new yet to be released album that comes out on my birthday very exciting in june uh cover to cover for no one that had heard it like all the fans and yeah, it was incredible. It was like a 36-hour trip to L.A. And I just, I love her so much. And it was fantastic. And just to see somebody, it's her divorce album. So to see somebody be that vulnerable on stage for two hours and just like wail her face off was, and I've seen her plenty, but it was just something that I had never experienced before. So it was pretty exciting. And I think you said it was a pretty intimate, like it wasn't that many people, right? Yeah, I was like less than a thousand people. So to see her in that small venue, like it'll never happen again, frankly. So thank you for highlighting that. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Uh, Noble, shall we take get it get get to Cashlack and get to work? Sure. Uh, Layla, I'm going to talk to you about our first case, about Miss Tickawiz. She's 79 years old. Uh, she came in from a nursing facility. She had a change in mentation, ultimental status, and she's been getting weaker over the past week. Uh, the staff also said she has, um, you know, her urine and her Foley bag has become cloudy. Um, she has a diagnosis of vascular dementia, so at baseline, she uses a wheelchair for mobility. But she's able to feed herself. She recognizes her family. Um, otherwise, she has a past medical history of a sacral decubitus ulcer, um, and they use the urinary catheter to prevent skin breakdown. She has a history of hypertension and diet-controlled diabetes. She has uh, had been decreasing her PO intake for the past couple of weeks um, because her close friend at the facility was hospitalized. When she comes uh, to see us, she doesn't have a fever. Her blood pressure is 105 over 70 with a pulse of 92. Her oxygen was 98% on room air, and she has a BMI of 26. When we talk to her, she's oriented to herself, but not to the location or the situation. On exam, she has a urinary catheter with cloudy urine. Her physical exam is otherwise unremarkable, except she does have her stage 3 decubitus sacred ulcer, but that appears stable. On labs, her white count is 9,500. Her hemoglobin is 11,000. Her BUN is 50, and her creatinine is 2.3, and she had a baseline creatinine of 0.8. They took some urine from a Foley bag, and it showed 25 white blood cells per high-power field, 5 red cells, and a few hyaline casts, 1 plus leukocyte esterase, 1 plus nitrite, and 2 plus bacteria. So, we see this a case like this pretty much all the time. 
Yes, yes, we do. This is kind of the bread and butter for us. And it reminds me when I was a fellow that at the VA in Cleveland where I used to see these patients all by myself on the weekend. So um, it's very good. Yeah, delirium and encephalopathy in an older adult is basically our bread and butter as well. I was wondering before we get started, if we could start with some definitions, please. Um, how do you define pyuria and bacteria? And, and how is that related to the definition of, of catheter-associated urinary tract infection? Yeah, it's good to start with definitions to put a good framework of what we're working with. And I think knowing the definitions will help us uh, differentiate between what we call asymptomatic and symptomatic uh, bacteriuria. So pyuria, just by the word it says, it you want to have more than 10 WBCs uh, per high power field. Uh, and that is on, on a without someone without a, a catheter. With a catheter, it goes up to 25. Now, Bacteriuria is uh, it's the presence of, of bacteria in the urine. That's the most simple uh, definition. Um, they have been trying to say if you have how many of those colony forming should be bacteria, and you say more than 10 to the fifth or more than 100,000. But really, the bacteria can be divided in asymptomatic and symptomatic. And this is where we can also have catheter-associated uh, urinary tract infections or catheter-associated asymptomatic bacteria. So it's a, it's a good key point to start our discussion. So going on, like when I feel like one of the hardest parts is defining some of those symptoms um, and separating the patient into whether this is considered asymptomatic or symptomatic. So can you next kind of walk us through what those symptoms are that actually count to classify them into symptomatic bacteria? Yeah, so, you know, it's especially in elderly patients in this um, uh, example from Cashland. Um, it's going to be a little bit hard, but what you're looking is uh, like flank pain, acute hematuria, you can have deliriums, you can have rigors, you can have fever. Um, some of them can show some frequency. Um, you know, it's like they feel like the bladder is more uh, distended. If they have a neurogenic bladder, they, they feel like it's more full, even though you should not have a sensation but that. Um, sometimes you have superpubic pain. Uh, the the, the main definition is that you want to have, a, for catheter-associated UTIs, is you have fever, you have a catheter, and you have a positive urine culture. Symptoms have always been uh, difficult uh, to describe because you can have other things that can mask those symptoms. So, for example, someone who's dehydrated can actually have altermental status, but not necessarily have fever. Um, so those are some things to think about. Um, sometimes they are they have reported subjective symptoms like you know pain or dysuria um, around the catheter they they'll feel, they'll feel like that. I think that Noble kind of did a really good job outlining this case that we see a lot, which is you know someone who um, mental status wise is not always like A and O times three, and then. You know, s someone who's with them all the time says they're a little bit different, but like you said, there could be other things that are like masking that. Um, so I just wanted to clarify, like when you have like delirium or like the encephalopathy, like in the um, symptoms, how like encephalopathic do they need to be for you to be like, yeah, I feel like that's really the symptom that's correlating to this or 
is it kind of like what you said? You have to kind of wait and see with, you know, was this just fluid related or whatnot? Yeah, so you have to look at alternative causes. And one of the things of one of my, my good friends and mentor who writes about catheter urinary tract infections or cavities, uh, Barbara Trotner, always, you know, had a campaign about Paul kicking the UTI. So the idea was that the, you should stop and think if the patient had urinary tract symptoms. If they didn't, you should find for another cause. Um, Altermental status, if you can actually define it by something else, if you can see, for example, in this case, we saw that the creatinine went from normal to 2.5. Uh, the urine analysis actually showed um, that you had an increased hyaline cast, which will suggest that there was more of a uh, acute kidney injury or uh, AKI on them that could reference. Other things that also help you in your labs is that you had a normal white count um, and not a, a big deal a difference, but you did have an increased BUN as well as a creatinine going more with that. So you have to see the patient as a whole and try to say, explain the labs with what you have in there seeing the patients. Uh, so you know, so there was a study back in, in 2011 of uh, Sandoval uh, from, the British, uh, from the British Medical Journal of Family Practice uh, where they tried to define, you know, what the symptoms were, um, trying to also look at how these patients were, you know, if the, if the encephalopathy was um, correlated to the, to the urinary tract infection as, as as categorized. And at the end, what they saw is that there was no relationship between, you know, the change of mental status and developing a urinary tract infection. A another part is that sometimes you will hear that they say there's a lot of foul smell or the urine looks a little bit more uh, darker. Um, so that could also be um, a part of the increased production of ammonia, as well as breakdown of the bacteria. Cloudy urine, like we, we heard here, is often interpreted as, an, um, as warrants some antimicrobial treatment. So you want to treat it because it doesn't look normal. Um, but the odor, as well as the cloudiness, might not be um, associated with the bacteria, and it could be due to something else. So management of hydration, looking at what other symptoms and other causes you can will help you uh, with the um, treatment. This episode is brought to you by Birch Living. Audience, I've had a Birch mattress for over two years now, and I love this thing. It's cool to sleep on. It's very breathable. This has been a big part of me stepping up my sleep game because I know sleep is so important to keep me functioning at my job, at curbsiders, everything that I like to do. And my Birch mattress has really helped me do that. Birch mattresses are made with just the finest materials like organic fair trade cotton, organic wool, and natural latex. And they're made right here in America. I'm confident you're going to love your mattress as much as I do, but in case you're worried, they have a 100-night free sleep trial. So what are you waiting for? Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com curb. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com curb. Sleep better with Birch.
when you're just talking about this case specifically, you were talking about like her normal white count being, um, I guess, reassuring. But one of the characteristics is also fever. But when I when I think of like older patients, I feel like the argument we sometimes make is like, can they mount that fever response and all of that? Um, does that are you pretty gung ho about like, hey, I need to see that fever or like, how do you kind of play on play that out? So fever can be in in um, in older patients uh, cannot be part of it sometimes because you are not going to be mounted a lot. Uh, there was um, there's been a lack of association between fever and and um, catheter associated uh, bacteria is also demonstrated in what we see the long-term facilities. Um, this was a study by Cunning et al., uh, where they looked at elderly and nursing home patients and found that 74 of the catheterized patients developed some uh, catheter-associated bacteria in less than 2% had a temperature over 38. Um, also, the incidence of a febrile episode um, of possible urinary origin was 1.1 cases per 100 patient days of catheterizations. So kind of thinking that most fever episodes will resolve spontaneously and they were not due to the bacteria in the urine. So you have to put all the symptoms together. I, I don't know if that helps a little bit. No, no, that's really helpful. I think one of the things, especially kind of early in my career that I struggled with is that lack of a response mounted by the patient, not just with the fever, but also like this patient's white count's normal. And that also, I feel like is something that I didn't always, I kind of would just brush things aside if they didn't look the way I thought. And I think that's a really important point to sort of remember when you're thinking about this. So no, that was really helpful. And this patient, I think the other clue, and uh, I mean, this would be part of uh, examining the patient, is that you didn't, you know, she had a, a um, the blood pressure was normal. Uh, she had a, a, a response, your pulse was 92. Um, you know, and, and then you had this increase on her creatinine. So sometimes hydration would help um, to see if that changes the mental status of the patient. Keeping those symptoms in mind, I'm going to ask kind of an un, what seems like an unrelated question to come back to the symptoms. But when we're talking about catheter-associated UTIs, like the catheters we're talking about are any type of catheter, right? Like bully, super pubic catheters, or are we really only talking about um, indwelling catheters? So when we talked about catheter associated, actually involves kind of everything that you describe, um, either in, in a Foley, a condom catheter, um, actually um, intermittent catheterization, um, and actually nephrostomy tubes are another one. But the most okay. one that we have in mind is the Foley that is inserted into the urethra and stays there. Um, Sanjit Say, who's at University of Michigan, um, said that the Foley was the third leg of the patient, meaning if the patient had a Foley catheter, not only increased the risk of having a catheter-associated UTI, but also had an increase of falls and increase and had a decrease on mobility, because that Foley makes makes you sit in the bed and not get up, and and you can actually with the Foley also trip over, and that's how the falls happen. So um, we have to kind of think of those things too. Yeah, and I think the point about the condom catheter actually is really important because I think sometimes what happens on the floor, 
that nurses will, you know, point out the patients on has a Foley. And so I think, you know, just patterns that you pick up from people before you is like people would jump to condom catheters and making sure that we understand that they put you pose a similar risk to, you know, kind of the classic indwelling Foley catheter, I think is in a point well taken. Um, again, that I think should get passed down more. Yeah, the condom catheter is, um, I don't know if, if, if you observe it, it uh, you know, it's, it's a condom, but it actually there is a moisture around it because it, there's a, an area that kind of pulls around and that moisture causes a lot of uh, skin breakdown and maceration. And that could also lead to um, um, other um, soft tissues and uh, also um, other problems, especially for, for the male. Have we seen that also in with the female external catheters? I see more and more that are being used as well in the hospital. Yeah, I, there's no studies. I mean, there's been studies with condoms, um, but with the female, the, the problem with that, even though it absorbs, it, the material can cause microabrasions. And also, if the patient is having diarrhea, that catheter is going to pick that up. And that could also just by proximity cause some of, you know, um, colonization. And then when you go take a, a urine sample you're, and you don't clean the area, you're actually just getting the colonized enterococcus and the rest of the gram negatives that are sit there. So thinking about then all of the catheters, um, one of the other things I struggle with with symptoms is that, you know, is it the catheter itself that's been causing the, you know, discomfort or um, like sometimes when they first go in, like the patient will tell me like, hey, this is, this feels like dysuria or burning or things like that. And it really is more related to the catheter having just gone in. Um, do you run into that as having to differentiate that at all or end up treating that or kind of how do you go through that? You know, in order to avoid of that, um, one is trying to, when you put a Foley, uh, follow the bundle, right? There's a bundle that helps, um, you know, in making sure that you have a gel because, you you know, so there's some um, less friction when you go in, right? Um, so you also, what they looked at, there was um, another study um, where they looked at uh, 1,497 patients, newly catheterized patients, uh, where they, were, they did prospectively looking at urine cultures and looking at leukocyte counts and symptoms. Uh, to see if those symptoms that you're talking about, like that dysuria or the discomfort, actually meant that they had a urinary tract infection. And they found that 224 patients developed 235 episodes of bacteria, right? And um, out of and then 194 patients with those uh, catheter-associated bacteria could respond to symptoms assessment. So 8% said that they have some urinary tract, they had pain, it, the catheter was painful, but it did not develop to a urinary tract infection. Um, so looking at those indwelling catheters, you always look for other things that can help you, like you know the leukocytosis and the fever and then a positive urine culture if it's warranted. Yeah. I think I've asked enough questions about symptoms. <laughs> no, I think that's a good. I think that's a good kind of place to kind of advance us forward. So, Noble, would you mind kind of moving us forward to the to the next section here? Sure. I mean, it sounds like um, that 
colonies are not straightforward. I mean, the symptoms can be different, the presentations and everything um, can be a real challenge. And so I think this is why we're faced with it in, in our hospitalized patients. Okay, let's say that Ms. Uh, Wiz rules out for other kinds of encephalopathy or that we correct it as best as, best as possible. And our suspicion of Cotty is much higher. She develops a fever and her urine culture finally grows out 100,000 colonies of Klebsiella uh, oxytosis species. Just curious about what type, we mentioned this a little bit about the types of patients who are at highest risk of uh, having a Foley. Are there other characteristics that you think of um, that make patients high risk? So uh, we're going to do genders. So females and, and, and age uh, are uh, typical, the ones that are going to develop more catheter-associated uh, urinary tract infections. And one, the, it has to do with anatomy. And the other one, it, it, the same thing that happens in urinary tract infections has to do with kind of a trophic vag, uh, uh, vag, vaginitis, where there's a low uh, mucosal production as a, as a protection. Uh, Long-term, um, so patients who have an indwelling catheter uh, for XYZ reason, um, is going to develop a catheter-associated UTI. So we prefer that the patients be self-cath than having a Foley permanently there. Just so if you think about it, the Foley is like draining an abscess, right? So it's you have this, this tube that goes in into the bladder, which, you know, if it gets infected, but also can bring bacteria from the outside to the inside. And the other one is um, long-term, not just in the hospital, but intensive care units. The less mobile you are and, and you know, you are going to be colonized with bacteria. The Foley is going to be colonized with bacteria. And eventually that bacteria are going to sit in the bladder and cause a urinary tract infection um, associated with the Foley. Yeah, um, that's... I think that's really helpful framework about kind of what should be setting off our alarm bells for patients that have them. Uh, if we could step back just a second, I think this is something that Meredith and I talk about in our or like our offices sometimes is we have patients who come in and Ms. Wiz is very fortunate that she has one bacteria growing, but frequently that is not the case and you get multiple bacteria and I'm like, do I just throw like the kitchen sink and miropenem and vancomycin and, you know, throw on some antifungals for good measure? Like, I, like, what do I do when I see multiple bugs growing? So the first thing is to ask, how was the sample collected? Did they, did they collect the sample from the bag? You know, the bag that is being hanging by the floor all this time and just sitting there. Um, how, how did they collect the sample? So that's one of the things, first things to ask. The other thing is, you know, for example, let's, let's talk, not polymicrobial, but let's talk about Candida. So they call you and they said, you know, the urine culture grew candida. That is kind of one of the most common uh, pages that our uh, infectious disease fellows get. So the first thing we're going to say is, have you changed the Foley? Because the Foley has been sitting there for X, Y days, right? Now, now with the electronic medical records, we can see how long they've been there. But let's say the Foley's been there for seven days. It's seven days of colonization, right? So you want to change the Foley and get a new sample. So a fresh sample that you can actually be reliable. Two is I always ask, How's, you know, did the patient uh, have diarrhea or stool? If stool was sitting there, you know, sometimes you go to uh, places and you see the Foley and the patient is sitting in some stool, you already know that that catheter is going to be colonized. And so if you get also 
you know, a sample from there, that is not going to be true. So you're looking for one bacteria, um, you know, not many, unless you're thinking about, for example, that you have a fistula, right? Uh, and if that happens repetitively, that's what I would think about. Yeah. And, and then once we've sort of done that part, so then what do I do? Like, how do I treat them or not treat them? So, you know, so, so it's polymicrobial. So you get a new culture. Um, and this actually, that's where your, your analysis is going to help you because now you've taken out the folate that has, they had the problem. You look at there, look at how many uh, WBCs you have and have, if you have a uh, number of bacterias, right? Um, and you have different antibiograms in your intensive care units as well as the wards. And you can actually see the top 10 or the top five urinary tract infections and you will go from there. Uh, for example, if you had yeast, uh, the first thing to do, you know, before treating yeast in the urine, the candiduria, is to actually remove the foley um, and hydrate the patient before treating, you know, candida in the urine and thinking that that might be something else going on. Um, and let's say when you repeat the culture, you're still getting like two of the same bugs back. Um, and you've done all of that, like you've gotten a good, like you watched them, you got a good sample and everything, but you're still getting two. And even though like, for example, Miss Wiz has the sacral D cube, but everything looks stable on it. You're not really worried about another alternative infectious source. Um, do you still treat the two? Cause I, I feel like what happens is when I see two or three bugs, I'm like, well, that's just like some sort of contaminant or it's not real. Um, but when I don't have an alternative source, I feel um, pot invested, if you will, into giving them the antibiotics for the full course. So one, one way to look at it is, you know, you can, if the patient is deteriorating immediately, you can add the antibiotics and then be a good steward taking the antibiotic off. So that's, that's to set that before the patient goes into sepsis or anything, you, if you don't have all your data points, you can actually treat at that time and just, you know, over the 24, 48 hours, determine if you need to. The, if you have two bacterias, um, here it could be go two ways. One is that you have uh, a clonal population, so you end up having two E. coli, right? One that is more more friendly, you know, and the other one's very multi-drug resistant. Um, or you could have a couple of bacteria. And so one thing to ask is, does this patient have, like, you know, for example, if it's a cerebral palsy patient who's in the ICU, in the intensive care unit, does this patient make stones? Are, are we actually getting some of the flinging of the stones? Um, there is a question you could have, you know, so that would be one. The other thing is think about, okay, so I get a gram negative and I get a, an enterococcus fecalis, right? So should I treat the enterococcus? Again, if the foley is sitting in the perianal area, it's going to get colonized. And those bacteria are going to go anatomically, especially in women, more than in men, uh, are going to go into the urethra and can cause issues. So you treat actually the one that looks the most. It's like you'll say some that they have 100,000 and then the enterococcus will come with 10,000 to 50,000. That's the innocent bystanders. You treat the one that has 100,000. Does that help a little bit, Marathi? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so because I think that um, I see the urine culture with multiple things on it and then I'm just like, mm, yet again. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think having it in kind of the... Um, 
like algorithm that you just described is helpful. Yeah. And, you know, and the other thing is depends who gets your urine culture. I, I, I mean, we, we get a lot of samples from the Foley bag, uh, you know, um, other thing, for example, in, in women who have uh, high BMI might not be the easiest to get a sample. Right. And so that's why trying to get a, a catheterized, you know, um, sample would be best, but that might be difficult just, um, you know, in order even putting the Foley right. The other thing you might ask is the nurses is how difficult it was putting the Foley in. Um, sometimes there's strictures and if you forcefully, sometimes they'll have hematuria and that could also cause some issues. I think um, the question that just came to mind too, that we actually probably should have talked about before was, um, Probably the timeline, too, of how long the catheter has to be in, because the other thing that I think comes up is like sometimes, you know, someone came in in the ICU, got a Foley, comes out of the ICU, Foley comes out, but then gets replaced with the condom catheter um, and then ends up with some sort of UTI symptoms. And so um, can we talk about the counting of days and when you're counting that as like this is catheter associated versus was community acquired? So when we think about cath or indwelling urethral uh, cath catheters or, or catheter-associated UTIs is when the patient developed a urinary tract infection with the catheter on more you know, than 24 hours or when you take it off, from you, you remove the catheter, right? So one good question to ask before you put the catheter is, why do you need a catheter? Uh, you might need a catheter for, you know, the patient has acute urinary retention or bladder outlet obstruction, right? The patient is going to intensive care unit and you need ins and outs, right? Uh, Perioperative uh, procedures, right? All, all surgical procedures get put in, uh, you know, a Foley. Um, patients who have, like, like uh, Ms. Wiss, she has um, a sacral decubitus, and so they put a catheter so the urine won't, you know, go into the, uh, to the back and call mas more maceration. Patients who require prolonged hospital immobilization. So uh, we don't see those often, uh, but you probably see those more uh, in trauma centers where they have pelvic fractures, right? Um, so those are where, where they're appropriate indication. When you remove it is once the patient is awake and you don't have to have ins and outs and the patient can, you know, um, be able to mobilize and um, take a, for example, post-op, no more than 24 hours, right? You want to take that catheter out the sooner it is. If a patient is coming out of the ICU, does the, cat, does the patient need actually a catheter? If the patient is awake, not on pressors, and, every, and they can actually have a way of holding the urinal, um, then you don't need to have a catheter. Remember, the urinary catheter is your third leg. Prolonged hospitalizations, higher frequencies of falls, unless the patient is moving because it's not going to get up and to go to the bathroom is requires more physical therapy and they have become more frail. No, I especially the ICU point made me realize think about the study that one of my attendings in med school would always talk about of how they went around and asked all the attendings how many of their patients had a Foley. And it was something embarrassingly low, like 30% or something. I don't remember exactly the number, but like we just need to be better about like walking around the bed and seeing what hardware is in the room and the Foley being one of them. Um, I just want to make sure that I got the definition correctly for how long. So it's if it's been in for longer than 24 hours 
And then after it's removed, if they get symptoms within that first 24 hours of removal, correct? Just want to make sure. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Correct. Great. I mean, I think some of this is semantics, but when we have like, you know, these measures and stuff at hospitals, it's important to know like what's being counted and that sort of thing, I think. So uh, thanks Leo, for those definitions. Uh, I'd like to go back to think about how we manage the patients with antimicrobials, maybe first with what is the your antibiotic of choice for empiric treatment uh, that you mentioned, especially if you're worried about the patient uh, before you might narrow it. Um, maybe we'll start with that, but I also would like to think about how you think about the duration of treatment and whether or not that um, is affected or tr- changed by whether or not this is a, a, uh, a urinary tract infection that's caused by a catheter or not. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question, Oval. Um, you know, as 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 we're get, entering the area where shorter is better, uh, a lot of the regimens have been shortened just um, in urinary tract infections in general. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, um, the Infectious Disease Society guidelines for catheter-associated UTIs are a little outdated. Um, they are about 13 years old. Uh, there are new guidelines coming up, um, according to the, the inside information that, that I have on the guidelines committee. So we should have some. But let's look at this. So, for example... Um, Usually seven days is recommended duration of antimicrobial treatment for patients with uh, catheter-associated urinary tract infections who have a prompt resolution, meaning that you start treating the patient, you change the the foley, and the patient's symptoms, uh, leukocytosis, fevers, and, and get better, right? You might need to treat longer, so 10 to 14 days, if there is a delayed response or if the patient remains with a catheter inside. So let's let's say, for example, you have a patient in the intensive care unit and you've already did blood cultures, you did, uh, and they were negative, and, and you couldn't find any other cause for this patient's decompensation. So um, a, a, a catheter-associated UTI has been diagnosed. With the caveat that when you put the diagnosis, you're, you're, Infection control people are going to cringe because uh, nationwide, one way of making sure that we adhere about um, nosocomial infections, because it's considered a nosocomial infection, is that that means that you now have a cowdy day and people don't like that. So um, so you you would treat, you know, about uh, about 10 to 14 days if the patient doesn't get better. But if they get better, you know, it's a seven day course. Uh, patients who are not severely ill, um, usually it's a five-day regimen, um, and here will depend on the bacteria. You can use levofloxacin, uh, you can use uh, uh, ceftriaxone, depending on your antibiogram, you know. Um, there's not enough uh, data to make a strong re- recommendation for other fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin or moxifloxacin um, at this time. And if it's a, a woman of age less than 65 years old uh, without an upper urinary tract symptoms, meaning she doesn't have a pyelonephritis after an indwelling catheter, then you actually do the three-day antimicrobial regimen. So, or you could do one day a uh, packet of phosphomycin uh, or three days of the trimetroprene sulfa uh, that is uh, considered standard. So it, it will depend, one, on your antibiogram, to 
on how clinically the patient is, and then you would either do three for women under 65 without a pilo, five days of uh, fluoroquinolone, in this case, levofloxacin, if they're not severely ill and there's no contraindication, and seven days if they have prompt resolution, um, 10 days if, they are, if there's a delayed uh, response on a patient remains with a catheter. Is day one from day that you exchange the catheter? Yes. Okay. And that you start your and antibiotic, then, yeah. Because you, okay. you should start your antibiotic the same day that you exchange your catheter. Right. So think about exchanging the catheter as your source control. So one thing that we like to talk about a lot in infectious disease is that our antibiotics alone are not going to do anything unless you have source control. So the catheter has been there, has been colonized, has biofilm, little bacteria sticking to it. You want to change it because that would be your source control. And then when culture data comes back, you can downgrade from the septraxone or levofloxacin. Yes, you can. Yeah. Yeah. And I think along those lines, so, you know, the empiric choices are presuming these patients have not ever had like a urine culture before or something. So my MO, which is probably completely wrong, is if I have a patient that's had, you know, multiple infection, caudies or urinary tract infections, I try to find like fairly recent, the most recent that they have, and then kind of pick based on those susceptibilities. Am I doing that wrong? Or is that something that I should continue doing? No, you, you want to know, you always colonize with the bacteria that you had before. So, but if you have recurrent, uh, uh, catheter associated urinary tract infections, you have to know what the cause is just like recurring urinary tract infections. What is, why is this person having recurrent infections? Is it A, because, okay, they have a neurogenic bladder, right? What can we do different to change that neurogenic bladder? So we know that having a constant Foley is introducing bacteria and biofilm. So can this patient self-cath or have someone cath the patient, right? Or talk to urology to make a, a leostomy where they would get cath and that produces less urinary tract infections, right? Um, is, this, is this person having recurrence because they're stones or they have some reflux in the urethral, right? And that the only way to know that is, you know, well, one by, by urology. Um, the other thing is if they have stones, they might actually end up with a nephrostomy tube because they're backed up, you know? Um, maybe they have recurrent urinary tract infections because they have an enlarged prostate. So have an obstruction outlet issue, right? So then you have to think, is it the urinary or is it a prostate issue, right? So, so it's thinking always of a cause of why you're having this recurrence. That's interesting because I often like for the catheter associated and I think because it's a quality measure, I'm always like it's somehow our fault. And I forget like seriously, <laughs> like I forget that it there is like still the anatomy of the patient that's dictating. I didn't think that was supposed to be that funny. Yeah, I feel like I think about anatomy more in men because it's definitely less common. So I'm always like, oh, why is that happening? And generally it's an outpatient urology follow up. Uh, but yeah, no, it's I mean, definitely thinking about anatomy yeah. pride is actually very important. So. Yeah, and, and remember in women, you, you know, the anatomy matters, right? But also it, the perimenopausal, the, the, the lack of estrogen, that mucosal barrier is gone, right? And, and if you have 
a, a you know a female on a bed and the bacteria is just travel up and down on on the on the sheet of that you have on the bed right so the person is going to be colonized so if you you know um you know if you sample some of the intensive care units or some of the of the beds like they do in infection control you'll find bacteria around you know i think before we get to um get too far into it. I think we probably need a recap because we've covered a lot of ground so far. So Noble, would you mind kind of going through a couple bullet points that you think everyone should know? Sure. I think with uh, we learned that, you know, we might think about the typical signs and symptoms of cottage would be fever, uh, leukocytosis, and flank pain, but those are not always present um, in the case of so you have to have, uh, um, you want to rule out other causes and have a high uh, clinical suspicion. We talked about the using the Foley catheter, thinking of the Foley catheter as the third leg, uh, meaning that it uh, definitely can cause the immobilization and therefore can um, be a risk factor for the development of CAUTI. And thinking about removal of CAUTI, uh, removal of the Foley catheter early as for source control, um, even prior to antimicrobial use. Awesome. Thank you for that wonderful recap. And um, we'll go ahead and, Noble, do you want to just jump into the second case? Yeah, we'll talk about Miss uh, Brittany Pierce. She's 50 years old. Um, she had a syncope episode and she fell and uh, unfortunately suffered a febrile neck fracture. As it turned out, she had a fall a year ago and after developing COVID and broke her wrist, but she wasn't hospitalized at that time. Um, she's having a lot of pain um, and you know can't get up to use the best I can mode. We get paged uh, by the nursing staff asking if they can insert a Foley catheter uh, to help both with monitoring urine output and to prevent skin breakdown. Um, this question really is about the role of the inpatient provider and the hospitalist in caring for patients um, in the situation. So, Lila, what, how would you counsel a hospitalist taking care of Ms. Pierce in the situation? Yeah, you know, Miss um, Pierce is, you know, she she just had a femoral fracture, so she's going to be immobilized. And we had talked about if the patient requires a prolonged immobilization. Um, you know, she didn't have a pelvic fracture; she just had the neck the neck of the femur. Having an indwelling catheter might actually be helpful, especially if she is incontinence. Another option is uh, doing self-catheterizations. Uh, if you know she's 50 years old, uh, she should be uh, able to self-cath. Uh, it's a little bit more uncomfortable, especially especially in women, uh, or, or than than in in men. Um, but in this case, at least until the pain subsides, I, I will use, you know, look at putting a catheter, kind of monitor the catheter on every day in rounds, kind of put it on my little notes and say it's catheter day one, two, and just assess how the pain and how the ability of, of uh, Ms. Pierce is to self-cath so you can remove that catheter the sooner the possible, especially if this patient is going to go to the surgical suite to get the the pelvic, the femur uh, fixed, right? Because you don't want to end up with a prosthetic joint infection because you had a urinary tract infection. So things get complicated. And how fast can those catheters come out? Like, is it solely up to the surgeon saying like when that patient can mobilize again? Or are you trying to get that catheter out pretty quickly? So usually the catheter shouldn't be there more than 24 hours, you know. I mean, once the patient's able to pee correctly and there's no urinary tension from um, 
for example, from, from the anesthesia or, for example, they give too much hydrocodone and you can have urinary retention, right? So you want to do that. Um, I think one part where we, we fail or is a challenge for us is in, in those patients that already have um, re, uh, urinary retention and you put a catheter and then the bladder decides not to you know, work with you. Um, so having uh, bladder stimulants it helps in that case in order to remove the, the catheter. Um, if the patient cannot move, like for example, pelvic fracture or they have a lumbar part, those will have to remain. And then you have to think about like if it's uh, someone who is paraplegic or a quad, like what long-term uh, solutions you have. And for the pelvic fracture, again, it will depend. And it's easier for men because you could, they, someone can help with the self-cath than, than in women. Again, it's an anatomy issue. So it sounds like we really need to um, think about and understand like the, the, the rationale for the use of the urinary catheter for our patients. And I know my experience, like for this case where we get called um, by staff asking for Foley catheter, um, sometimes I get the sense it's out of maybe convenience um, and... Um, whether it be patients, sometimes even patients' families are asking for the, the Foley catheter to be placed because uh, postoperatively it's difficult to get up and, and, and use, you know, and, and urinate. But I know at our hospital, they tend to get our physical therapy tends to get the patients up really pretty quickly postoperatively. And as you said, with the third leg, it seems like the Foley catheter would get in the way of their recovery. Yes, correct. And so the other thing is to think of other alternatives to the indwelling catheter, right? So I mentioned a couple of times about intermittent catheterization. Um, you know, there's superpubic uh, catheters for those patients who have bladder emptying dysfunctions. Obviously, these are more chronic uh, issues. You know, and the same thing happens with the condom catheter and the pure wake. It's, it's the sooner we can get and get them up, the be the more benefit the patient has. You know, less de uh, less thrombosis, less time. You know, sacral decubitus. Um, you know, mobilization is good. I think we've talked a fair amount about most of the indications. I think one just to throw out there, you know, for palliative patients that are kind of on comfort care, that's sometimes just easier for them to have um, a catheter. But I think we covered most of the other reasons or indications for um, having a, a Foley. Um, you know, I think a lot of work has been done in the last decade or so about preventing these altogether. So we talk a lot about, like, do they even need it at all and thinking about um, alternatives to Foley's. But I think there's a few other things maybe that they've kind of mentioned as things that can be helpful. Um, so I was wondering if you could go through some of those. So big part of uh, infection prevention and um, the, the, the big uh, proponent is SHEA, which is the Society of Hospital Epidemiology and, and, and Antibiotic Stewardship, is, uh, for example, quality improvement programs. Um, when you implement the, a QI program, the strategy is to enhance the use of the indwelling catheters. So you want to look at utilization of catheters, identify and removal of the catheters, ensure adherence of hygiene and in the use of bundles. Um, those, those, those help. And, and there's been publications on this. Uh, there's been one was um, on JAMA Internal Medicine in 2015 in the effectiveness of antimicrobial stewardship approach of urinary catheter-associated asymptomatic bacteria. And, and this is interesting because the, 
the the work was done by actually um, in geriatric patients. Uh, there was a couple of residents um, in in the paper and geriatricians. Uh, what they saw is that when once you intervene, meaning that you had you know you removed the catheter, uh, they didn't also didn't culture the the catheter all the time. They showed an improvement. The problem was that you have to actually continue doing that because you have to have a maintenance. Um, so the improvement kind of persisted during a low intensity maintenance period, but the impact was more seen in long-term um, uh, patients. And, and another one from the American Journal of Infection Control that came in 2020, and, and I highlight this because this uh, uh, has several uh, great stewards here, and, and, and one of our uh, one of a former fellow from Baylor, Melanie Goble. Uh, but you have uh, Payal Patel who works a lot on this, as well as Barbara Trotner, and they looked at organizational readiness assessment and acute and long-term care important implications of antibiotic stewardship for catheter-associated asymptomatic bacteria. So you can have this uh, quality improvement process projects where you can actually impact the lives and develop guidelines and algorithms um, to improve uh, the patients, diminish the length of stay, and prevent um, antibiotic-resistant uh, and C. diff in those patients too. Uh, Layla, what would be your take-home points that you want to make sure the listeners got? Um, one is that we should not treat every uh, urinary culture as a reflex part. So think about what the patient is. So just, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's not a knee jerk movement, right? Why, why are we doing this? Um, so before you treat it, a uh, second, um, think that putting a catheter is an intervention that can cause major effects. So you want to have, if you're going to put a catheter, you want to think yourself, I'm going to be able to remove this catheter when, and why am I doing this? So be intentional about it and then kind of put it on your note or in a little bit of, you know, like your side periphery memory to, you know, question about that. Um, so it doesn't stay longer there. Shorter is better. Um, there will be new guidelines to treating things shorter. And um, sometimes we can go from IV intravenous to oral antibiotics instead of having to do that. So those would be my three main take homes. Awesome. And anything you want to plug? So I, I want to plug, actually, it's called the Febrile Podcast uh, by Sarah Dong. She will be coming to join us as um, a new uh, attending uh, at, here at Emory. Uh, Sarah has met Pete. She's coming from Boston. Uh, she's an incredible place. Uh, Febrile Podcast has info sheets, uh, has a a great clinical reasoning throughout. Um, I think is anyone who is interested in ID or just want to brush up, it's a, it's a excellent. And so she combines uh, medicine as well as pediatrics in her podcast. And then if you're more interested in our literature, there is the podcast. So it's P-U-S-S cast where they review the literature <laughs> every week. That's yes, awesome. It's the pus whisperer. It's the pus whisperer. The pus guest. Um, <laughs> and that keeps us out of breath of what's going on. So this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Still hungry for more? 
Yep. Join our Patreon and get all episodes ad-free plus twice monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com backslash curbsiders. You can find show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox, including our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And a reminder that we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this... And most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writer-producer, Dr. Noble Malik. Welcome back after the inpatient hypertension episode. And to our whole Curbsiders team. Our technical production is done by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. And Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Moni Amin. This is Noble Malik. As always, this has been Meredith Trubit. Thank you and good night. <laughs>